to another episode of the Art First Commerce Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Levy, and we are sponsored by Masters in Motion. This week is with cinematographer Khalid Motaseb, and I just got off the interview record with him. And um, yeah, I, I've not, I don't know if I've ever had an interview um, like this. We, we spoke for two hours, um, and a lot of that is because we just went on tangents and I was happy to go down them. Um, you know, I've known Khalid for about 10 years and we go over that fact. Um, there's always been a few things that I wanted to ask him about that never really had the opportunity or the forum. It's kind of one of the nice things about having the podcast is using it in, in ways that, that, you know, you can't necessarily do or have these conversations in another way. Um, I suppose you can force it, but this, this is kind of a nice platform for that, even with people that, 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 you know, personally. Um, and obviously Khalid is, uh, an incredibly talented, uh, individual and he, his, his career has fired, fired off like a rocket, um, 12 years ago and it hasn't, it hasn't stopped. Um, he's a, an incredibly accomplished co- commercial DP, which we go over in the podcast is a label that he's trying to break through. And um, he has three features under his belt now. Uh, the last one premiered at Sundance, um, directed by Alan Ball, who uh, wrote American Beauty. And he was also the showrunner and writer for Six Feet Under and True Blood on HBO. Um, so obviously he's trying to make waves in other directions as well. And I have no doubt uh, that he will continue to and 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 really succeed at uh, with more time, and um, you know it's just one of those. I think I caught like we just caught it at a good moment. We this podcast has been on and off for five years, and actually the very first episode was done in the variable office late one night with John Bragel. Um, it was me and John in person. Um, that's episode one of this whole thing. And it's funny to go back and listen to that one. I mean, it's just five years ago, so there's going to be differences anyway, but then even just my understanding of how to give these types of interviews, what I was hoping out of it, what I was interested in hearing about. Um, and so I am now, uh, truly grateful that it's been this long to sit down with Khalid, uh, cause I think it happened at the right time for where I'm at and what I'm interested in and how I want to talk about this craft and what I am desiring to understand and know. And also for Khalid, where he's at in his career, in his life, um, on his own journey. Um, you know, he discusses the fact that he's two years sober now and what that means. And so I think it's a real blessing that we were able to chat now where there is a certain, um, there's just a different view from that position than there would have been a year ago, two years ago, and so on. So uh, it was. This is a this is a really special one, and um, you know I'm thrilled to be able to have this type of conversation, to have it recorded, um, and to be able to share it uh, at a time when I know a lot of people are sitting at home and worrying about the state of the world and worrying about their own careers and worrying about this industry and um, what's going to happen. And I think uh, this conversation, it certainly was something that I want, I needed um, in this time right now. And I hope, uh, you know, being able to share it is, is a, is a good thing. So um, we're sponsored by masters in motion and um, they put on a filmmaking conference every year 
um, in Austin, Texas, every December. They have um, speakers like Khalid, speakers like Alan Ball, um, ASC cinematographers, AC editors, big-time production designers, um, putting on presentations, going out at, at night. You can pick their brain in person. It's a really great and wonderful event, and you can go to shootedlearn.com to learn more about that. And so now, here are uh, two hours of chatting with cinematographer Khalid Motaseb. Uh, be safe, be healthy, and thank you for being here. I saw um, just on social or something, you were talking about like what programs people are getting into, like how are you spending your days, like how are you trying to have some sort of positive impact on the fact that you have all this time. And I was curious, what are you, what are you doing with your free time that might be beneficial for, you know, the craft or your learning or anything like that? Well, you know, I, I, I guess it's been, it's been 12 years and the way I, I've organized photos up until now, photos and projects in general is by year. Mm-hmm. So there's projects that go back from 2006 to 2005, you know, very, very early on when I really, really first started kind of even testing things and just messing around with cameras. But so little by little, my, that data management started to become not unorganized. I wouldn't say it was unorganized because it was organized to a degree, but just unmanageable. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what year I shot a project. And then my, my folder structure was per year and then per country and then within that country it's like which city so i've been to brazil like three times i've been to kiev like uh i don't know 10 times maybe mm-hmm. so it started to get really really messy so i hired chris dowsett um oh, yeah. to organize it in lightroom classic which i never really took seriously as a as an organizational tool because i thought it was more like kind of a a fast photoshop Mm-hmm. Or a not so powerful Photoshop, and Chris is like, he's a he's incredible man. He's like a kind of a Lightroom guru. So he spent this was almost a year ago, May of uh, 2019. He went through all of my images through um, like this thing called Join Me that allows him to control my desktop remotely. Yeah. So he's in he's in Calgary and he's going through my raid um, and organizing all the images. Wow. So he did that a year ago, but, you know, I have to whittle down almost half a million images, maybe more than half a million images. So across that year, since he stopped that process, he said, you have to go in and now do this, these amount of tasks. I haven't had time to myself. Mm. I've been so kind of back to back to back to back. And even when I had time off, the last thing I wanted to do was was organize images. Yeah, totally. You know, so um, that process was was super slow and it was it got to a point where I got really stressed out like super stressed out with what I, what do I do with this amount of media yeah and I got I got a new camera and I've got a medium format camera now that, that shoots even larger file sizes so you know managing file sizes becomes a huge thing and so um as soon as I heard that you know this was gonna we were gonna be locked down and we were gonna have a little bit of time I've got a studio in Brooklyn in an industry city. And then I found out that I can't go to that studio anymore. Mm. You know, I'm not even allowed into the building, into oh. my own personal space. So I took my iMac and my RAID mm-hmm. and I brought it home and I kind of set up a home office, which is, it's actually been great. It's been really great. 
um, when I have the time away from, from the kid, you know, but, um, sure. I guess to answer your question, a few of the things that I've been trying to do, not just during this quarantine time, but goals that I've set at the beginning of the year, which I try to do almost every year is learning certain applications, Lightroom being one of them, Mm -hmm. uh, InDesign being another one of them, because I want to be able to manage the way I'm presenting things to directors, especially in the feature space. Yeah, like your lookbooks and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. And I usually do them in um, uh, Keynote, but Keynote's quite limited. And, you know, if I want to create a template, I've just heard from directors that InDesign is the way to go. And I've wanted to learn it for a while. Yeah. I'm also learning Illustrator. I'm just learning the whole nine yards again. I'm I'm learning Premiere again, believe it or not, because it's changed so much. What are you hoping to learn that one for? Premiere? For your own editing? I, don't, I, I mean, I think Premiere is like, there's certain times where I want to make adjustments to um, to a grade, for example. Like I'll get a grade back and I'll think this one shot can can use a bit more contrast. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just do it in Premiere because it's so easy. Right. You know, but a, a part of it's like, you know, I, Resolve's on there as well, but it's at the, at the very bottom of the list. But I want to learn how to play the piano. I want to learn mm. French. I want to learn mm. Spanish. I want to learn... Um, accounting you know i really want to learn accounting and quickbooks that's it that's at the top of my list mm-hmm. so i feel like this time i'm not, i haven't been bored for a single second mm. you know if anything i've been busier now than i was when i was working interesting yeah it's so strange man but um you know i'm trying to keep myself inspired i'm trying to um i'm trying to find ways to kind of reset my brain organize my life organize my my soul Organize your soul. It's, yeah, man. My soul's been fucking... I mean, it's it's everywhere, dude. When you're working and you're going from project to project to project, you're all over the place. Yeah. There's no way to organize your soul that way. And, and uh, What's the work of organizing your soul? Meditation's been something that I've been doing almost daily now. Mm-hmm. Working out almost three hours a day in a weird way. Mm-hmm. You know, stretching. Like, it really... Being a DP, as you know, man, like it takes a toll on your body. And now that I've been shooting for 12 years or so, I, I look back at 12 years ago and I used to be able to hold a fucking camera, a really heavy like ENG camera in the, in the documentary days. Yeah. For hours and hours and hours. And now, even with an easy rig, I'm struggling to hold it for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I've been going to um, uh, a physical therapist and, and a chiropractor and, the, and they are telling me how much stretching are you doing? Or they're asking me how much stretching are you doing? And I said, I don't, I don't stretch at all. Yeah. You know, and I think that should be one of the lessons in film school is stretch. I mean, not, <laughs> not specifically film school, but if you, if you want to be a DP, you have to stretch Yeah. or you're just going to fucking tear your body apart. I worked with, with uh, Roger Deakins a Steadicam operator in London mm-hmm. and, um, the guy's in his, I don't, I'm not sure, but he's, he's an older man. He's probably in his late 60s or something, you know, maybe even 70s. I'm, I'm not sure. No, I'd say he's in, he's in his 60s. Yeah. But he's in fucking terrific shape. He's in such good shape. Yeah. And the guy's like, um, I'm, I asked him, what's the key? What's the key to, how are you still operating the Steadicam after so many years of operating? And he's, the guy's a legend, you know, 20, 30 years of operating on some of the biggest films in the world. He's Deacon Steady. And he said right stretching. Stretching. He said, I stretch every day, 45 minutes a day. Yeah. And that and that really um, hit me hard. When I heard that, I said, I've got to start stretching. 
you know. And then I did I did it the, the last job just before well, Sam Pillings' job was the last technical job, but we never really shot it. We just landed in Kiev and then went back. But uh the last job before this whole fucking world collapsed yeah. was um a project with Renald Gosset at, at Reset. And that was in Chile. And the production designer was also like an older guy, probably in his sixties as well. And we became quite close, and he stretches for forty-five minutes a day as a designer. Yeah. And I asked, and I asked him, "Do you do it consistently every single day?" And he said, "You have no idea what stretching will do to your mind. Mm, that's not just your body, but just your mind. Because in a way, stretching is like meditation." And I said, "There's no fucking way stretching is like meditation, man. Come on." <laughs> and he said, "If you turn your music off." And you just let your wa- your mind wander and you just stretch, long-form stretching, right? Mm. Your mind will go into places that you would never think it'd go. So I tried it. I tried it on that job uh, in Chile. One, I realized how unflexible I was. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's a humbling, it's humbling when you first start, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm much more flexible now, even though it's a, it's a month in. But you'd be surprised at the results. Yeah. And and two, it it took me to like um, a spiritual place, man. It's, it was really phenomenal. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Well, that's that's a lot of interesting answers to that question and how you're spending your time on that. Um, I can I can go on forever about I'm, that, man. You know I'm sure. I mean? Yeah. No, I, I'm I sure. I really can. Yeah. No. No. That's that's cool and good to hear. I think that these kind of conversations now are definitely helpful because um, I think we're all trying to figure out how to spend these days in a way that doesn't drive ourselves crazy and is yeah but I'm, I'm i'm hearing people are bored and i'm like how the fuck are you bored mm. how do you not want to learn something mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like there's there's so many other kind of ways i'm even thinking of of um learning something else as a career just in case the film industry never comes back up well, that's because we don't that's know extreme. we really have no clue at this point if the film industry will ever be the same again and that uncertainty is a bit is a bit scary. I mean, I don't want to say it's scary because it's not, but it's certainly concerning. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when I was thinking about the fact that we were going to be talking, um, it's it's interesting because you know I've known you for about ten years. And yeah, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah, and and that there were always some questions that I've had. Or things that I've wondered um, and never had the opportunity to ask him, so I'm I'm, I'm excited to have that. Um, and I wanted to kind of go back to somewhat of, of of the beginning, I would think, and just at first talk about um, full sale, and uh-huh. it's because it seemed to me that like that had a real impact on you, and not even if it was from the education per se, but that you met you know John Bragel, Paige DeMarco, Brad Burke there, right, um, right, and I'm like I was wondering. When you're meeting, when you were meeting them, how long did it take for you to realize that these were relationships were going to be, you know, special and extend beyond where you were in that moment being in college? That's a really great question, man. Like, really great question. I think if, um, like, my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like, what what college is going to be like, and high school is going to be like for our son. And um, you know, I do think that university or college or however you want to call it is is beneficial and it will continue to be beneficial like physically being there i mean because you get to meet people and susan just finished her master's or she's finishing her master's sadly it got shut down for a little bit at columbia yeah 
and she's been she's been going there physically and she said that that's hugely helpful so even though i i technically dropped out of full sale it was extremely beneficial for me because i got to meet the right people and i met way more people than just that i met seth coleman the gaffer andrew brinkhouse who's a camera operator now like a really good camera operator, Andrew Hubbard, who who's a gaffer in New York, uh, John Bragel. You know, John Bragel and I, when we first met, it was like um, it was almost like meeting a brother that you've never known. Mm-hmm. You know, we got along so well. We had the same interests. We uh, we both didn't like film school for the same reasons. He just he was the type of person that. What were those reasons? Just what film school? Yeah. Just, I, I mean, the biggest the biggest reason why I didn't like film school, and this was not just Full Sail, but NYU and the Film Academy and any kind of standard um, type of curriculum, is because there's there's a there's a certain way that people act, or a certain way that people dress that they think that if you're going to art school, this is the way you have to be. And I didn't like that front at all. I didn't like that people were kind of more focused on the way they looked mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to making great work. And the second reason is because I think half of it's bullshit, <laughs> you know, especially if you want to be a, a director of photography. I mean, I think that um, there's, there's certain things, especially when you're paying for school, if you don't want to learn that specific thing, you should not have to fucking do it, mm. you know? And I hated that, you know, I didn't want to learn about, um, what was it at the time? Um, behavioral science. There was a behavioral science course. And as much as I, at the moment, I, I, I would love to take that course again. But when I was 18 or 19, I had no interest at all in, in, uh, in that type of thing. You know, I just wanted to get in, in front of a camera or behind the camera and start shooting. Mm. So there was that side of it. Um, the other side of it's just like, getting good grades and you're not going to be a great filmmaker if you if you're getting good grades i'm sorry but uh you know i didn't really give a shit about my grades i i cared so much more about making the work or meeting the people or actually understanding the uh the things that i wanted to understand at at the time where do you think john was on the same page on that he was was on the exact same page on that he there there was a really dirty word that him and i used i can't say now sadly but (laughs) we referred to those kinds of people Uh (laughs) yeah um where do you think that that came from that understanding um about like your priority structure because i i think i've i've always been struck by that with you Um, um it's always been very strong very direct and very knowing in terms of what is actually required for a successful career. And it almost seems like you were like, you arrived that way, but that, that can't be the case. Like where did, where did it, where does it come from? No, no, not at all, man. Not at all. My climb was extremely slow. And I, but the thing is, is I knew that it was not your career climb, not your career climb. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your, your mentality. Oh, it's because I love what I do, man. You Mm. know, like if you know, and if you love what you do, you're going to be, you're going to give it everything you have into it. If I didn't like it. Yeah. Like if I was an accountant, for example. Yeah. I would be the laziest guy in the world. I'd be sitting on a couch all day, you know, but I think that's part of it. The second part is, um, I think that I was never really a school person. I never really enjoyed school. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to do it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I wanted to not, not to prove it to other people, to prove it to myself that I could do it because there were so many people in the beginning of this whole thing that questioned, I'm sure you know as well, that questioned, you want to, you want to go to film school. You want to be a cinematographer for a living. That's insane. Like the success rate is so low. And how are you going to make a living shooting? What are you going to be shooting? Yeah. You know, you're going to shoot movies for a living. That's so hard to get into. That's so, you know, my my parents are doctors and most of my friends growing up uh, that, that were family friends were uh, kids of doctors. So no one was in the kind of art world. They didn't understand it. Yeah. And then when, and then the whole freelance side of it, my dad was like, you're fucking out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You want to freelance? Like, there's no such thing as freelancing. At the time, freelancing was like a new thing. Yeah. You know, now it's so simple. It's like there's tons of entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. different types of people that are freelancers, you know? Yeah. No, but it's much more I wanted. I wanted to prove it to myself that I can do it. I wanted to prove uh, my dad wrong at the time. Uh, that didn't last for that long, but I did definitely. That was definitely part of the motive. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But I don't know what you're what you're sort of referring to as like. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if I totally answered your question, but uh, it's okay. I think we're going to tap into it a few times along the way, so it's no worries. Um, when you left Full Sail early, how did you come to that decision? What was what was being presented, and how did you make the choice? Well, I didn't. I didn't drop out. I took, I took a, a small leave of absence, like a, uh, in the in the program at the time. It was a two-year program, and there was no breaks in between. It was just like go, go, go. Uh, a week off for Christmas, a week off for summer, mm-hmm. and then you just continue to go and get a bachelor's degree in two years. That's that's part of the reason why I liked it. I was just like, oh wow, this is a fast way to do it, and you get your hands on the tools right away. But Part of the program was if you want to, you can take a three-month leave yeah, um, and then come back and then you would essentially be at the level behind, but I, I didn't really care about that. Right. So I took a leave for three months to work on a short film that was, um, that was fully funded and it wasn't a lot of money, but they were paying me to do it and um, they had money to pay actors and they were doing it properly and it was a friend of mine that was doing it. So I couldn't turn that opportunity down. I was just like, this could be really great. I really felt it. I, I liked the script. Uh, so I took that. I made a bit of money. And then another project came in, a small kind of corporate commercial project. And then that came in. And it, it was sort of a domino effect from there. It was just like one job led to another, to, yeah. a, to a passion project. Then I met Solomon and, and him, like, him and I kind of started working together. And then I started um, um, variable. Right. Well, and we're when taking John left. Yeah. Full sale. He had, he'd always, him and I, when, even when we, when we were at full sale, we'd always talked about him coming to New York and us working together as like a duo, mm-hmm. you know, like he can direct and I can shoot or I can direct and he can shoot. We didn't really know. We just knew that we worked very, very well together just from film school. Yeah. From the six, from the six months that I was there, we shot together like almost weekly. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd go out and shoot stills or we'd just pick up a, a DVX 100, HVX 100 or whatever the camera was at the time and just shoot, 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 shoot. Um, so he was super motivated and 
that's sort of how variable came together is that uh i was in new york i was hustling and i was working on basic projects but projects that made me a lot of money and uh, a lot of money for the time and then we started the company together as sort of um a collective we we were so young and sort of naive at the time that we didn't really have a business structure we didn't yeah. really understand anything about running a business or a production company well, because so i was going to ask we started it as a collective yeah well that i get maybe that answers the question too because i was going to ask that because it seemed like even before variable started just to jump a little bit before that that you know it seemed like in the times that i've met you and, and even before that that you had a grasp on how to navigate the commercial world from really early on that and maybe that is kind of tapping into what i was asking prior that like i don't know where mm -hmm. that that sense came from because i think like now if you graduate and with instagram and being able to kind of follow the big names you can kind of get a sense for who's who and how things work back then it wasn't as easy and you seem yeah. to have um you had a sense of it that i was um always like i marveled at it and wh where did where did that come from you think and because i'm not even i'm even before variable days just a sense of the the playing field well i I think that there's there's two ways to describe someone's uh, IQ or how smart somebody is. You can you can test them with, and with different kinds of uh, you know like SATs and that type of thing in America. I'm not sure how it is in Europe and sure. South America and the rest of the world, but how book smart somebody is, and then how street smart somebody was. Mm -hmm. I was always very street smart. Mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, when I was 15 years old, I was promoting at New York City nightclubs. Really? And making quite a bit of money at 15. I'm not joking. You know, at 21 year old nightclubs. Yeah. So we were we were hustlers as as kids, my friends and I. Yeah. And um, you know, we got into a lot of trouble, but I made a lot of money, and um, I've never been arrested, thank thankfully. Yeah. But um, so I sort of knew how to navigate the territory in that sense, and then I've always sort of been described as somebody that's easy to talk to and somebody that's like a people person. Sure. I'm not sure if I am because I, I find myself to be a, an introvert in many ways, but I do get along with people. I don't really hate anybody. I don't mm -hmm. hate a specific characteristic about anybody. There's certain things that definitely piss me off, <laughs> Yeah. you know, about certain people, but I feel like I, I try to see the best in everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and when you try to see the best in everybody, when, when you have that quality, which my mom taught me for my whole life is just see the best in anybody and anybody that you see, uh, anybody that you meet, hmm. try to see the absolute best in them. And that quality really helped me, I hmm. think, mm -hmm. you know, because I'd meet an agency person that has a bad reputation and I would think he's sweet just off right off the bat, even though I knew his reputation. Right. Or I'd, or I'd meet somebody that runs a specific company or a director or a producer with a bad rep. And I would just see the best in them. Hmm. And I always looked at everything as an opportunity, even the really horrible kind of projects that I was shooting at the time. For some reason, I just always told myself to kind of try to um, try to picture yourself not shooting this. If you weren't shooting this, what would you be doing? Hmm. So I think that helped quite a bit as well. Yeah. Um, is that I was just so fucking grateful to do what I was doing not to not go back to full sale. Mm. I just didn't, I didn't want to go back to film school. I didn't want to because yeah. I was making money doing it. So 
you know how it is. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I, I'd love to ask you the same question. How 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 did you uh, get to a point where you were successful as a freelancer? How did you get to a point where you were making a consistent amount of money where you said, okay, now I'm comfortable freelancing and not having a full-time job? Got how it. did that happen for you? I mean, it's just the same. Like, I think it's for everyone, it's, it's the same thing and the details are different. And it's just like refusing for it to be any other way right constantly f- gnawing at whatever scraps are being thrown and building from the scraps and getting tossed but you're, into a, the but wind. you're a new yorker you're a new yorker just like me man so yeah. you you get it you know the hustle yeah i feel like new yorkers understand that for some odd reason the people that grew up in the tri-state area sure or the areas that are sort of close within the 20 mile range of new york city get it somehow in the in the street in the street smart type of way. Yeah, it, it is an interesting thing to kind of break down. It is, it is, it is a, 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 maybe it is a component in some way, or at least just whoever does make it in this realm has a certain level of that hustle about them because there is nobody looking out for you besides your, yourself. And I think no, that there is no. a big, that's a big learning curve. Um, I think when, you, I don't know, especially like, and it's not a bad thing either, but you grow up somewhat coddled um rightfully so that's love but then at a certain Mm. point you have this this um i don't know i can't pinpoint exactly when it happened but i know that the mentality happens like oh wait a second like no one gives a shit about me nope and and no one cares if i figure it out or have success or get the job or get anything no one no one cares about that yeah they 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 say they do and i i'd like to think that you know just again to see the best in people that people do oh yeah i'm not trying but, to have it be a negative but, thing but yeah no no i understand totally man yeah i yeah. understand completely even now even now like your 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 best and closest collaborators sure they want you to grow but they don't really care if you grow or not right at the end they care if they grow and if you're with Absolutely. them and if you're with them for that because you make sense in their growth trajectory then great but otherwise you know. But that's that's why meeting the right people in film school is so important, man. Mm. You know, I mean, Paige and John and Brad and all these people that I met. Uh, you know, you you meet these people, and you can tell who's going to make it and who's not going to make it in the film industry almost immediately. So kind I of. think surrounding yourself with the right people is like half the game. Yeah. Even though even they're even though that they're looking out for themselves, but ultimately, if they grow and they become successful, and you're physically and mentally around them you're going to be in that same world you know i I remember something as clear as day and i'll never forget it kind of one of our first conversations was at the original masters in motion Mm -hmm. and we were on a rooftop of a of a place on sixth street and Mm -hmm. you asked me um you were like do you surround yourself with people who uh who have the same values as you i remember i remember you asked me that yeah and and you were like because i because i do and you were talking about John and Tyler at the time. Yeah. And yeah. and 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 it was like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's come full circle in terms of this conversation. Um, yeah, it's funny, man. And and I still believe that John, Tyler, and myself do have the same values, you know. But people grow, and partnerships collapse all the time because of personal growth and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know certain things like that. Yeah. So. Um, but I still I feel like I feel like that's a that's a really nice topic. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, surrounding yourself with people that are that share the same values, share the same morals, share the same interests. Well, film is tribal. It doesn't have to be exactly the same interests. You know, it could be a it could be different tastes, but like John and I had different tastes completely from the very get go, and we knew it. You think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting because one of the things that I wanted to ask in this moment too, that kind of on the one side, it's your knowledge and know-how and understanding of the commercial world and how to navigate it that I was curious about. But on the other side, like you had a deep sense, or at least from the outside, you know, I'm always, these are not, I don't know. But like from the outside, it always seemed like you had a deep sense of your own aesthetic. And of course, it's continually evolving, um, artistically yeah. uh, technical ability but your own aesthetic was always kind of understood from the beginning and that i think that you've been a leader in trends because of it mm. and that that's been a case for quite a while and i mean especially when we're talking about back in the day 10 mm-hmm. years ago and everyone and their mother is ex- is like lifting the blacks and milking everything out and you know you're right you're exposing for the highlight and like talking so much about how, you know, I remember a conversation we have, you're like, I want a predominantly black frame. Um, Mm. and that, so where did that sense of aesthetic in the beginning, um, where do you think you derived it from? That's a great question, man. Like it's, it's a, it's a question that from, even for me, the answer to that continues to change almost, almost daily, maybe weekly, but you know, I think about that all the time about, not just me, but somebody is like distinctive as like Steve Annis, for example, when you look at his totally, work, it's 100%. so extremely distinctive. Mm-hmm. And I've been labeled as a really distinctive DP. Like people hire me for a specific look, which is a blessing and a curse. You yeah, know, I wanted a, to talk about that a, actually. It's a curse because you can't really grow outside of that. Mm-hmm. You're stuck to this specific aesthetic. And, you know, I think, I think my answer to that now is um, just my upbringing uh, the things that I saw, the experiences that I went through, that all kind of factors in and just being completely truthful with yourself. I was always not afraid to be truthful with who I really am. And I know that sounds silly when you're lighting and shooting, but no. you know, you sort of have to, you sort no, of have They're to. all decisions. Yeah, sure. And I, very early on, I knew what I didn't like, you know? Mm. I didn't necessarily know exactly what I loved or what I gravitated oh, towards, to but I knew what I didn't like. Yeah. So I think that that helped tremendously because I would look at images and even the images that I would reference and I would, it would be very clear on what I would throw away. Nope, 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 nope. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. Yeah. This is closer to who I am. Yeah. You know, and that fundamentally shapes the way you see things in a way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, no, that that makes sense. And it's interesting because it continues. It continues. Like, I, I noticed, to, to point something out, like, I don't know if mm-hmm. it was a year, it, maybe a couple of years ago now, you posted one of the first images that I saw of, um, of, a, of someone with a sliver of light over their face. Yeah. And I remember having the distinct thought that I'm like, within a year, everyone is going to be doing that. And when I yeah. saw you do it, it was the first time I saw it. And I was like, that's such a weird, strange thing to do. Mm. And now it is, it is part of the commercial language landscape. Like right. it, it has become, 
it, it's like a it's like a quasar in the frame. It's like you everyone kind of wants a couple of those sliver of lights on faces as part of their like mm. Instagram, you know, um, aesthetic. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and yeah, I, dude, and I, I didn't I didn't invent that, man. I definitely of course didn't you didn't. That. Of course you a, didn't. It was just an experimentation. It's all a remix, and like I'm not trying to say that it isn't, but um, I remember seeing you do it and clocking it that I was like, watch that become a thing. And yeah, in yeah. terms of that. Well, that's a compliment, man. That's that's really nice of you to say that. Sure, um, I you know I think I mean it as such, but I, I'm I'm curious about how much are you thinking about the that aspect of things where this isn't this hasn't been done, or I'm not seeing this around, and and if I and like I'm gonna make that a thing. Is this is this any part of the equation in your mind, or is that or are those realities just a byproduct, and you're not really trying to put any proactive thought that way? Because that's not no. I, I I think almost almost everything, man. Almost almost every project, almost any image that I shoot, if it's a still, uh, subconsciously even. I mean, it's it's conscious, but sometimes it's subconscious. Mm. How do I do it differently? How do I do it in a way that hasn't been done before? Mm. You know, I'm constantly trying to reinvent some a, a different technique or a different shadow or a different way to shape the light. Mm-hmm. How much light I let in, that type of thing. You know, but I always. I always study kind of photographs and I depict them like Miller, for example, Miller Mobley. Mm-hmm. Is this podcast going to be uh, video or is it? No, um, it's just audio. Oh, okay. So he, he, you could see it, but you could just Google. Hold on a second. Let me just see. You could just Google Miller Mobley, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And that image, which I'm going to get tattooed on me at some point, man, mm. but I just, I fucking loved it. I loved everything about that image. Yeah. And I remember talking to uh, to Miller about the way it was lit, and he didn't necessarily remember. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I, I know I threw up some flags, and I cut the light, and this, and this, and this. And when when I heard that, I said, you don't remember how you lit that beautiful image? I mean, fuck, the light is shaped so beautifully. Did you not go into that? knowing that you were going to light that way. Yeah. And he said, no, I, I didn't. It just ended there. So a lot of times I'll start somewhere. Like, mm. for example, I was shooting um, a good friend of mine's uh, wife, ex-wife now. Um, the director of The Wolf Hour, the first feature that I shot, his wife is also, is also a model. So when we were doing camera tests for The Wolf Hour, we had her um, – in the camera tests and Mm -hmm. then I suggested doing a lighting test Mm -hmm. because the whole entire film took place in one apartment. So I was just like, let's experiment with different ways we can light Naomi's face. Mm -hmm. Uh, Naomi meaning Naomi Watts. We weren't lighting Naomi at the time. We were lighting Maritza. That's his wife's name. Right. And I had all these kind of images of, um, from photographers in the seventies because the film took place in the seventies. And I wanted to experiment with the way people lit in the seventies primarily with hard light yeah and that went from you know an experimentation with hard light to experimentation with gobos i, I threw gobos in a leco and i front litter um you know and ex- i i think it sort of I, I got so many amazing images from that one shoot it was just an hour mm-hmm. and it was just like it was me and will martinez who was my photo assistant and uh banks and Banks wasn't doing anything. It was just me and Will, really, just fucking around with a few pro photo lights, which I still use until now. And I, I think they're the fastest way to experiment. And um, an RGB Leica, mm-hmm. a Lester that I that I own. 
mm-hmm. sad and sadly I broke it because there was that was like my favorite like to to experiment with. But during this time of quarantine, I'm gonna shoot like portraits of Susan, my wife. Yeah, that'll be nice. Who you know, who you know very well. Yeah. You know? And I'm gonna experiment with different ways. Like I just bought uh, a dado kit. Uh-huh. Those are great. And, oh, dude, they're the new ones are just the when I was at Camera Maj, Alex from from Dado Light, who's who's a bit aggressive, but he's he's a super nice guy when you get to know him. Mm-hmm. He showed me this um, this little small light. It, it's a battery operated light called a DLED three that m- most people don't know. Almost no rental houses have them. Mm-hmm. And this thing has a, a forty watt output, but it's so fucking punchy. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. So he showed me this parallel beam attachment for it that essentially turns it into like a, a mall beam, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. similar to a just a pocket sized mall beam. And we were standing at Cameron Watch's floor, like the um, the exhibition floor, or however you want to call it, yeah. like sort of like an NAB. Yep, yep. And he turned this thing on, dimmed it all the way up, and put the projection attachment on it. And there was a another booth. I think it was um, maybe in meters. I'll just refer to it in meters. Two hundred meters away, something like far that. Far away. Six hundred feet. Two so football far away. fields and away. The light was exactly the same exactly the same that's wild 10 feet away to 300 feet away and i said i immediately i said i must have this i gotta have it (laughs) and he said but why don't you just rent it and i said no 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 i have to have this so i bought it from him at that at that time Mm -hmm. you know they wrapped up the show and i bought it and i experimented so much with it that the last four or five projects that i've shot outside during the day Mm -hmm. i've keyed people's face using that thing on close-ups you know yeah yeah but I'll share some stills with you from like a BMW shoot where um, we were shooting at high noon in Cape Town and we're lighting a kid's face and I flagged the light completely. But you still see the hard light in the background. So you can imagine the exposure difference between flagging the light off. Right. And then I just used this small pocket sized data to light this kid's face. And it was like the most natural, beautiful, hard light. Like yeah, I'm curious so to see beautiful. that. That's, that's interesting. That's cool. So that that kit ended up becoming much bigger. I, I ended up getting two of those DLED threes, and then I bought all the projection attachments, all of the lenses, all of the gobos, all these little th- yeah nicks and crannies and that type of thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm gonna be lighting Susan's face with it. You can even there's a there's even a one by one soft box for this little small light. Cool. And it's like the fucking most beautiful soft ambient light. Nice. So maybe that's a project that I'll do in the next week or so. Is yeah. Shoot Susan. You um you meant you mentioned it at the start of this, and I thought I, I had a feeling it was going to get here, so I wanted to ask it because I think that it is interesting when a cinematographer embraces a style from very early on. I think that it can have a quicker, um, like orbital velocity to to in terms of your career path because you start to get hired and known for a style versus if you are trying to kind of make every script you get work in a different way that you think works for the script and you're not kind of throwing your aesthetic that you are kind of starting to get known for onto it that it might take um, longer to to grow and I was curious about that um, that path knowing that I think you strongly 
went down the path of having a very distinct style. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, were you ever thinking about this kind of thing? Like when you were getting scripts and you were like, I could do this a different way, but I kind of want to continue to do it in this one, this this style that I've been kind of nurturing? You mean the safe, like the safe way? I don't know. I don't necessarily know if it's safe because it's not like you were making things that were not um, edgy and um, beautiful. Well, you know what, dude? I'll, I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer this question. Maybe it doesn't answer this specific question. Yeah, go but ahead. It's something that's really important to 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 note. And I don't think I've ever said this before. But um, at the beginning of my career, I wanted to know everything technically. I wanted to learn how to how to light. And I wanted to learn how to draw. I wanted to learn all the techniques that painters use, that type of thing, so I can throw it out the window completely. So when I get on set or when I'm prepping a project, I'm not thinking about that whatsoever. Yeah. Like far, far side keying, for example. That's a that's a very commonly used technique sure. when you're lighting. Yeah. I, I learned that when I was 18, mm-hmm. you know, or 19, shooting shooting interviews. Because when you're shooting interviews, you it's like camera whoever's asking the questions, then light. It's not light, camera, whoever's asking the questions. So I feel like I learned so much shooting interviews because I learned how to far side key and I learned how yeah. to near side key and I learned how to top light. And I learned that I didn't like top light myself. There's there's a lot of DPs that know how to use top light. Personally, I'm not a top light kind of person. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily like light from above because it's so hard to one shape and two, the the shadows under the eyes it's either you're going to get tons of shadow under the eye or it's going to be too flat for me so from shooting interviews i learned an incredible amount of knowledge on the technique of lighting yeah and then you just apply that and then you apply it and you apply it and little by little i feel like i still until now don't like a hundred percent understand lighting but if i see an image i will um I will try to understand the way it was lit. Right. You know, when I'm watching a film, for example, I'm like, okay, I sort of know what's going on here. And, um, you know, I watch Adam Kimmel's work, for example, and Adam Kimmel lit the, the film Never Let Me Go, which I, I, I think is, in terms of the most kind of consistent looking film, probably the most consistent looking film in the world. And he uses really soft far side keys but he also uses top light in a really beautiful way he near side keys and somehow all of those images feel like the same world they have this cohesiveness to them that i found to be very inspiring at the time and i still i still do mm. but um you know he he was a big inspiration to me mm. um harris Savides in, in terms of diversity and you know he he was I think probably my biggest inspiration because of really? his, uh, he's, he can do anything, yeah. literally any, any type of movie, any kind of look, but he still has this weird signature that you sort of know it's Harris Savides' images. Like when he shoots for Gus Van Sant, it's not really like, you don't feel his lighting whatsoever. You right. don't feel his, his camera movement. You don't really feel anything, but it, he does it so I use this word very specifically, effortlessly. Well, that's really the coalescence of the two paths coming together, I think. Which I think, like, either way that your career starts, that's hopefully, ultimately, the end goal. Where your style is there, except it's 
done in a way that is so nuanced and balanced within what the story is requiring that it's not overriding or overshadowing, you know, the, the film itself. Yeah, but, but dude, that's why I use the word effortless. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I use that word to describe a lot of people's work mm. because if, if it feels forced, mm-hmm. then it's, it's wrong. It doesn't feel right. You know, and there's certain directors and certain DPs, definitely photographers that, can do a very, very heavy-handed look, but it feels effortless. Yeah. And when that happens, it's like, okay, great. You you pulled it off really well. Like Robbie Ryan, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Or, do you watch Ozark? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this past season just blew my mind. Oh, my God. So much... I mean, Ben, ben Kutchins, man, that motherfucker. <laughs> uh, uh, it's very... I mean that in the best way in the world. Of He's course you did. Of mine. Yeah. But fucking hell. It's like I don't I I barely ever watch TV and say fuck I'm so jealous. But I watch Ozark and I'm like, "Oh my god, this looks fucking incredible." Yeah. And it's so easy. It's like simple simple things. Like yeah. day exterior. Yes. It's just like beautiful. Yes, yes. I I I do think it is in the easiest ways or in the um perceived per- the simplest, perceived. I mean, simplicity is veiled complexity uh, especially when you're nailing it. Uh, absolutely so so that's a that's a great example of effortless he does a lot sure. of things that are really heavy-handed sure on the show yeah oh yeah um and it feels effortless bradford young i met him at camera Mosh too and he was like a really lovely guy he he does this thing where he short sides the actors uh-huh. you know and he's been doing that for his almost his entire career i don't know but the, the the first few films that i've seen that he mm-hmm. has shot he nearsighted the actors mm-hmm and um, I don't I don't know if that comes naturally to him or if he, it just feels so effortless that mm. he pulls it off. Mm. So I've tried it a few times and I'm like, you know what? No, it's, I'm going to change it. It doesn't feel right. You know? Yeah. And I tried it because of Bradford. I'm like, Bradford short sided this image. I'm, maybe I maybe I should try short siding. I've never done that before. But for some reason, it doesn't feel effortless when I do it. And I was talking to. You know, he's got a really difficult name, and I'm sorry that I'm butchering this, but the guy that runs Portbox, you know, the Instagram account Portbox? Yeah, I don't recall. I don't know the guy's name. Yeah, but, you know, are you familiar with the account? It's like a portfolio showcase type thing. Yeah, you just did a thing with him, didn't you? It's really nice. It's curated and kind of beautiful. And um, I was talking to him a few days ago. We were, like, live on Instagram, Mm -hmm. and I forgot what I was going to say. What were we just talking about? Effortlessness and the ability to do something that near, if, yeah, even if you're trying to near sighting, short sighting, short sighting the actors, yeah. and then Bradford. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I lost my strength. It's I'm okay. Like it's okay. Anyway, I I um I did want to jump back into the the career chronological discussion because I'm curious. Um, to get back to where you had brought us with variable um, mm-hmm. going into that venture, what knowing that you wanted to be a cinematographer to start something that was more of um, a collective in that, because a, a cinematographer's career is, is very singular and to, to choose to then build something larger than yourself. That's an interesting decision to make going into it. Where, where, where was your head at in making that well, choice? You know, when I when I um, 
when I started the company, man, b- before John and before Tyler were on board, I didn't want it to be what Variable ended up becoming. You know, that's part of the reason why I, I left the company so early mm-hmm. is because it just manifested into something that was just not my vision at all at the company. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they 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 were and could still be a very, very successful company because they have a good business model, you know, but it just wasn't the business model that I personally wanted. I, I guess the business model that I sort of wanted was too disruptive. And I still, until now, I own a company called Sibling that no one knows about. It's sort of a rental house and eventually will become like um, a collective. Yeah. But I want um, I want artists to be able to exercise any creative path that they want. One of the things that sort of drives me crazy about the film industry is these labels. Mm-hmm. Like you have to label yourself. And it's nice, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's extremely limiting because I'm a DP and I have to label myself as a DP. And if I start directing, for example, I will lose a lot of work as a DP. So I built, I've, I've spent 12 years, however long, 15 years building this DP career I can't just throw it out the window and start directing because, yeah, you know, so the company that I wanted to start was a way where John could direct and I can shoot or I could shoot and he can direct or I could produce and Tyler could shoot that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. You know, we, we worked with Solomon, for example, when I knew he was fucking ridiculously gifted and fucking unbelievably talented as a, as a director yeah. at the time. Yeah. But in the infancy of his career, he sound designed work for me, you know, and he um, he colored some things for me. And then I did some things for him. Mm-hmm. I went I was in Dubai for like a week and I shot something for him. So I loved that sort of weird collaboration where you can do a little bit of everything sadly that business model is not sustainable in the current um yeah like structure of not just the film industry but the unions yeah there's a lot of forces that make it yeah difficult but i still think until now man like one day and you can quote me on this dude you could definitely quote me on this one well, day we are recording future, you so i think you're good when I become when I become successful as a DP, when I become like like not successful, but when I have got a career, a real career, you know. What does that um, What does that mean to you? Because I think to a lot of people, you you do. Oh no, I'm far from it, man. I just I've just started. Right, you ha- you don't have a long career, but you certainly have a career. Yeah, I I do. I, I mean, I'm, a career is like making a living, you know. Sure. And I'm making a living shooting, but. Oh, this is what I, think I was, you're this is yourself... was going to say before. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, I was go talking ahead. to the guys from Portbox, and I was, we were talking about labels, uh, like labeling someone this specific thing. Yeah. And um, I don't like being labeled as a commercial DP. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that drives me insane. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so much anymore, but it did three years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, the last three years I've been working on myself quite a bit on managing expectations, managing anger, managing that, that type of thing, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, managing addictions. So mm-hmm. I don't like being called a commercial DP because in the long run, that's going to hurt you. Because sure. When, like when I'm up for features and I've been up for in this past year, 2019, I was up for some really significant projects, some really interesting interesting projects that i didn't get because quote unquote i was a commercial um 
DP. So having a career, to answer that question, I want to be able to shoot movies and not be labeled as a commercial DP. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing the difference between commercials and, and, uh, and features. And I remember five years ago, I was like, fuck that. Like, I can I could shoot anything. I could shoot a movie. And yeah. then I shot my first movie, and I was like, "No, I actually, I actually can't shoot a movie. It's a completely different discipline. Mm. Even though you're you're lighting in a in a similar way, and you're shaping the light in a similar way, you're placing the camera in certain places. But certainly, the way you're talking to the crew, the way that you're talking to the director, the way you're planning, mm -hmm. the way you're shot listing, it's completely different. Yeah, completely different. So um, that that led me to think that. I don't have a career in features and I need, I really need to start at, at zero again. So I built my commercial career in 12 years and I've been fairly successful at it, but right. now I'm building my feature career. I see what you're saying. And feature in TV, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of Ozark, like Ozark was uh, offered up to me by, by, um, by Ben, by Ben Kitchens. Mm -hmm. I was going to shoot, I think the even episodes or maybe the odd episodes, I don't remember. Yeah. But we, we were talking about it. We had that, that conversation. And then ultimately, Jason Bateman decided that he just wanted Ben to do it. But, you know, I think that if I had uh, a bigger body of work and features in TV and just long form kind of narrative. Right. I feel like I would have had a better chance at getting that. That makes you sense. Know, but if, if you present my work to somebody like Jason Bateman, mm -hmm. he's he's not going to he's not like. He's not going to look at it and be impressed. Right. You know, he, he's not going to look at my commercials and be like, oh, wow, this guy's a great DP. You know, he wants to see some long form stuff. He wants to see that I've shot reputable, respectful films, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's similar with, with a photographer. Like I was talking to Miller Mobley mm -hmm. about uh, about that image behind me. Because I'm just so fucking obsessed with that image, man. I'm so in love with it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he he rose fairly quickly in the uh, in um, celebrity photography world, and I asked him how that happened, and he said all it took was one celebrity. He mm. said, "You have no idea, man. Like I built my career, and I I've learned so many things, and it was I was itching to uh, to to shoot editorial and to shoot celebrities and that that type of these types of portraits, and then I think he said it was Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey was like the first celebrity that he shot for the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah." And he shot that image. It got pub. Uh, it got um, what's the word? Not public. It got Pu published. Um, published. <laughs> it got published, and then from then on, his career took off. He yeah. said, like you know, and within within a year, he was shooting the biggest celebrities and the biggest uh, names in show business, and and then he got bored of it. Man, I was like, how the fuck could you be bored? And, and he was telling me that he didn't have a career. And I'm like, are you fucking crazy, man? You've shot everybody. And he said, yeah, but I want to shoot more important people. And I said, what do you mean more important people? Like you're shooting the greatest living artists in yeah. our time. Yeah. He said, I want to I shoot Barack Obama. And then two months later, I see that he's shooting Barack Obama. <laughs> you know? And now he's shooting Michelle Obama. Yeah. So I, I really love Miller, man. I find him to be an inspirational guy, like both personally and, and professionally. But he's and, he, and he's truly like a good-hearted human being. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm talking about, man. I'm I just I just feel like I don't want to be labeled. And yeah. Well, that's somebody like uh, like Chiva, who I really look up to. Of course, yeah. I really look up to that guy. He 
is somebody where I, I would say he has a he has a fucking phenomenal career. Phenomenal career because he's directing commercials. He could he could shoot commercials. He could shoot features. So um, I can almost guarantee that he's been offered feature scripts left and right. Of course. Absolutely. I'm sure. But, and I'm sure he has a very strategic way of a, a strategic reason, answer for why he's not directing movies. Mm. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. No, totally. And I guess because those types of decision making and stuff, because I've always been, I remember just being so shocked and confused at first. It's come to make so much mm. more sense now. I get it now. I almost don't even need to ask the question now. But I was so shocked and confused when you left Variable. Because at the time, from the outside, it's like it was at the height of its, of its success. And mm-hmm. on a personal cinematography level, it seemed like you, you, know, you were making the best work. And it seemed like that was all a part of it. And then you did that. And I'm, it must have been a difficult choice, even if it was the right one. And I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. to hear what that was like for you. Well, it was. It was um, from a creative standpoint. It was a simple choice, actually. That mean, yeah. I didn't like the work that we were producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to go down this documentary kind of route that, at the time, the company was going down. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, like, I, I got approached by WME and um, Artistry, and a few, well, at the time it was Sheldon Prosnet, but um, I got approached by a few DP agencies. Actually, Artistry wasn't one of them, or Sheldon Prosnet was not one of them, mm-hmm. because Greg and I, Greg and I just met. You know, he he didn't he never approached me. He's not that kind of person. Yeah, maybe he is now, and I'm not sure. But at the time, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. But I remember telling John and Tyler that, you know, I am thinking about signing as a DP, mm-hmm. and they said, well, why don't you just sign here? You know, so when that happened, I felt like it was wow, this is really limiting me. Mm. It's really limiting me because I can't work with other directors that are outside of this company. Mm-hmm. And I was doing things like, I don't know if you knew the structure of the, of the company, but there was like a, a, a lose-lose in a way where everybody would do a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of contradictory to what I was saying before, but I was like writing some of John's, or not writing, but... Um, laying out some of John's treatments and John was his, his directing game took off quite fast as well. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I didn't want to direct. I, I definitely don't want to run a company. I was so young at the time, man. and so foolish. And I felt like, I felt like I didn't want to have an overhead. Tyler was hiring, you know, production managers, Paige DeMarco, who's an amazing producer now, but at the time, we hired her as a production manager, and I, w- I was supportive of that. And then a friend of mine, Alex Friedman, who I met uh, like early on shooting that ABC show, uh, Final Witness, he came on as a producer. So the company started to grow, not in freelancers, but in the people that were in the company. Core you know, salary. The yeah. full-time people. So yeah. our overhead exploded in the, in the matter of a year. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say the number, man, but I was 24 or 25, however... How, whatever i don't remember how old i was specifically yeah but my overhead was like fucking skyrocketing and i said you know this is going to end in a very bad way this is going to end in a very bad way if i don't get out right now Mm. because i don't believe in the people that we're hiring 
those aren't people that I would hire personally. Mm. You know what I mean? And there was there was certain disagreements where when when you have a company with three people, man, what what ends up happening is it, it could either work in your favor if you all agree, sure. or it could really harm one person. Because if two people agree and one person doesn't agree, yeah. that one person feels left out. Makes those sense. two people can gang up on them, sure. that type of thing. So I'm not saying that that happened, but those types of emotions will dynamics. ultimately happen for sure. Yeah. So um, I left. Um, it wasn't easy because it harmed our friendship tremendously. It's hard, man. You did that also with like your... One of your best college buddies. There's, a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And John and I are reconnecting, man. We're, we're like reconnecting now, man. But it, it took a long time. It took a long time. It's like breaking up with, sure. Um, you know, with your girlfriend or your wife. Really, it was almost, it was almost a marriage, man. The relationship that the three of us had. Yeah. You know, more, more so John and I, because Tyler and I, of course, we got along as well, but. John and I, because Tyler was the producer and John and I were both the creative. So, right. and we'd known each other for a lot longer as well. And I knew his family, he knew my family and we, we just, uh, we had a certain thing. So leaving that company was, uh, was tough. It was definitely a, a tough part, but probably the best decision I've ever made. Yeah. I, that's the thing that I think at the time, like I said, it was, I couldn't believe it. And then. Uh, you know, just a curious onlooker watching what you would do and, and the things that you would be making in the years to follow at some point realizing like, man, like that smart motherfucker, <laughs> like he, he, <laughs> like, he, he, he saw it. Um, yeah, and that was always, man. that was always something that, um, yeah, I was curious to talk to you about that. And, and then, yeah. and a part of that too, because once you left that, I remember having some sort of discussion with you at one point where you were talking about and I believe that your mentality has changed, and I'm curious to, to discuss that, about um, your belief in an artist being mysterious mm-hmm. and that, that should some, that's something that should be valued, um, that, that, that you know, the artist should not explain themselves or that you, you shouldn't know who they are. You just should know their art. And that, in fact, only knowing their art and not, understand, not knowing them is better... For the art, and, and, and arguably for the artist's um, lore. For the artist's image, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I per- and this is, of course, very, very subjective. Yeah. You know, because there's so many opinions, and I, I don't want this to stir a big controversy, but mm-hmm. I personally feel like when I don't know the, the artist, not personally, like I, I know a lot, like Solomon's work, for example, um, when he makes art films and when he makes like music videos and that type of thing, I really appreciate it, and um, I will talk about painters for a second because I have been following these four painters for five, six years now, maybe longer even. There's a guy named Ryan Hewitt out of South Africa mm-hmm. that I used to fucking obsess over. Man, he he would just he draws these abstract portraitures, but in this smeary, fucking disgustingly ugly way. Mm-hmm. But there was this kind of inherent violence in all of his work. There was a violence to all of his paintings that yeah. I loved and I really gravitated towards. And there's a, another really, really, really talented artist as well named Henrik Aldolin, who just cranks out so many paintings. Like he just fucking, 
you go on his Instagram and it's just like, holy shit. Yeah. I can't believe that you're doing this this fast and so effortlessly. Mm. And I got to know both of those guys. And then there's a guy named uh, Matthew Laka or Matthew Laka, um, a French Canadian. He lives in Montreal. Mm hmm. And uh, the last guy and the most mysterious of them all is an artist that I got to know through Susan, actually. Mm. His, and his name is Salman Khushuri, uh, Khushuri, I guess in, in, in Arabic, or in Farsi, it's Khushuri, Khushuri maybe, uh, Salman. And he lives in Tehran, and mm -hmm. where, you know, the freedom of speech and, yeah. uh, you know, expression in general Mm -hmm. verbally is is illegal yeah you can't fucking speak what you you can't say fuck the president or you're gonna get hung or yeah you know yeah yeah something something to that degree yeah you're gonna go to prison you're gonna get kicked out of the country you're gonna truly you don't have the right to free speech it's an extremist it's an extremely extremely rigorous kind of fucking uh islamic country yeah so um he communicates through his art Mm -hmm. You know, he communicates through these drawings and through these, uh, he makes these robots out of wire, mm -hmm. out of wires. And his images are quite colorful. You know, they're, he uses color. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm always, I'm almost never attracted to color until I saw his work. And I have a really great story to tell you. I'll try to say it as fast as I can. Susan, um, my wife, is a political journalist uh, that works for the United Nations. You know that. Yeah. So she, during the General Assembly, the Iranian ambassador to the United States and um, the Iranian delegates mm -hmm. came to uh, the United Nations and they invited Susan, because she's, a, she's Iranian, mm -hmm. and she's a journalist at the United Nations, to a dinner at the Iranian ambassador's house. Yeah, wow. And they said, please bring your husband. And I, when she asked me to come, and I was, I was just like, "What the fuck? I'm, what am I gonna possibly do at this place? How am I gonna make conversation with these people? Mm. I don't want to go." You didn't want to go. Convinced me to go. No, no, I didn't want to go, man. Okay. I just had no interest. I, I have no interest in. It's not that I don't have interest. I do have interest. Because I mean, it's intellectually in, uh, stimulating. Politics, but I just don't know enough about it to sure. okay. have a proper conversation with okay. these people. Okay. Okay. You know, so I said, "Fuck it." Why not? You know, it'll be an experience. Yeah. I'm I'm going to I'm going to be supporting uh, supporting Susan of course. She can't just show up without a husband. No, no. So I'm going I'm going to go with her. Okay. So we we turn up and they were so nice. They were so inviting and so kind of generous, but at the top of the stairs cuz he lives in this big the Iranian ambassador. I guess it's probably where all of the ambassadors live. You know, they just shuffle the ambassadors and they they keep them in the same high rise or the same brownstone yeah but you go up this brownstone the bottom is this um like where where his workers live and you go up the stairs and at the top of the stairs you see these small paintings and these small paintings were like fucking incredible incredibly potent yeah and really really fucking violent wow like you just immediately was like holy fuck huh so I stopped. I stopped and I was like, Susan, this is like the most incredible fucking piece of work I've ever seen in my life. And she's like, come on, you're over fucking dramatic. Stop. You know, you're embarrassing me. Let's go say hello. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm serious. This is like really, really fucking good. Yeah. And it, I said, do you mind if I ask the ambassador who that painter is? And she said, yeah, sure. Why not? So I asked him and he said, oh, that, 
that's my son. And I said, you got to be fucking kidding me. Wow. And I said, do you have any other, any other pieces that, of his that, that you have here? He says, I have tons. So he goes into the back and this became like our conversation. You Isn't know, that amazing like, though? Because now our, you're connecting in a way that I'm sure many people that come to his place don't even connect with him on. Never connect with him on. Exactly. They don't get it. Exactly. Know? So we, we had this long, incredible discussion about his, his, uh, his son and then he FaceTimed his son. Cool. And him and I met that way. We met at, he thought that I was like this political guy. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I was like, dude, do you mind if we chat another time? And then a week later we get on Skype and he's like, oh, so you're not into politics. And I'm like, no, man, no, no, no. I'm, I am, but I'm not, my wife is yeah, a political yeah. journalist. Yeah. I'm, I'm a DP. And then I got to know his work. And when I asked him about his work, man, he couldn't, he could not describe any of it. Really? Like he was so kind of, yeah, dude, he, he was super insecure and super like, um, guarded with what mm-hmm. the work meant. And I knew what it meant, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because I know what it's like to live in the Middle East. I, mm-hmm. I've been to almost every country in the Middle East. I mm-hmm. grew up in the Middle East for nine years and we'd go back there every summer. So I kn- I know exactly what he's going through. Yeah. And even more so in a country like Iran, because it's even more extremist than where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, how could this artist paint these incredibly potent, violent images and not be able to describe it? How could that be? Yeah. Whereas somebody like Ryan Hewitt or somebody like Matthew Locke, for example, I mean, you can go on Matthew Locke's website and he describes every single one of his paintings. One of the paintings that I bought of his, mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to frame his description. Interesting. Because I thought the it's description not that was so, so beautiful that I was like, I should frame the description of what this means. It's not that the understanding and the lifting of the veil on that, it didn't ruin the work for you. It didn't. It didn't. But I, I'll get to another point, man, about that. Okay. At some point, at some point when I, when you start to learn too much about that artist, about that specific artist, mm-hmm. for some reason it started to turn me off. Not with Matthew, because Matthew's like, he's, he's quite prolific. It sounds like the work transcends that problem. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's married. He's a, he's, he's, um, he's gay and he's married to like a much older, older, older man that plays the violin while he paints. And that man is a philosopher. Mm-hmm. So his, his work is quite philosophical mm. and his descriptions are quite philosophical. So it's not like uh, cheap wording. I understand, you know, but it's like if I was to describe his work, it would sound like shit. I understand because I'm, I, I'm not, conceptual in that sense yeah um but it taught me a really nice lesson man it taught me it taught me that mystery and being mysterious is something that i guess subconsciously makes you um different you know i think different because it's not good it could be bad as well but definitely different so if you want to stand out Maybe mystery is something that we're all attracted to. I mean, that's that's a that's a piece of information that I talk about all the time. Is like, are we as human beings attracted to mystery? And I think to a certain degree we are because, like relationships, for example. When I first met Susan, she was super mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. Like she lived in Iran and she just moved to New York and mm-hmm. she had all these like kind of stories and all these things that were super mysterious. And I loved that. 
And not that I don't anymore, of course. I understand, I understand. But you understand what I'm saying. It's kind of interesting because I think that your aesthetic embraces this almost in its a visual version of it. I mean, I think a lot of your your palette lends itself to what you're describing. I don't think... that's, That's interesting to know. That doesn't seem like a coincidence either. But I don't know. That's the thing, man. Is like I, I feel like if what the day that I do understand it is the day that my career is over. <laughs> you know, maybe when I start because I'm I'm super into fashion and I want to eventually make clothing. Really. But when I become a fashion designer, yeah. But not, I'm not talking about fashion like kind of like I know Fendi and I I would have never type of fashion. I'm sure it is. Um, you know, and it's um, when I become a fashion designer. i will maybe be able to describe uh my process a bit better sure sure well because i was also going to say that i feel like and you alluded to the things that you might be working on personally about oneself that like there's been a move towards less mystery and it seems like a good thing Mm. i think so yeah, I, th- I definitely think so. I also think that that in general, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to be less aggressive. Mm. Um, you know, I've been sober for almost two years now. Oh, really? And that really, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it's really kind of changed the way I think about a lot of things. Mm. One of the big things is my work and how how serious I take it, how much effort and how much of me I'm actually giving into my work. Mm. But I'm I'm trying to. More, be kind of not more reactive but I, I i think i would explain it as more kind of um just shoot from my intuition as opposed to reference all the all the time mm. you know partially because i don't have the time to reference anymore you know with my son it's like you just when you're home you don't want to sit on a computer and look at images all day yeah you know, you're already doing that on Instagram and there's so much amazing imagery on it, on Instagram that I feel like referencing is so much easier now. It's just instilled in your brain. Yeah. So that's part of it. The second part of it's I just I'm trying to pick up projects that don't need a dark look. You know, because yeah. everything I'm hired for is like dark, dark, dark. You're dark, trying to break it. You know? Yeah, I'm trying to break it. But I also I just want to do something new. Mm-hmm. You know, and if if the script, for example, the feature calls for dark imagery, of course, you're not going to light it brightly because that would be foolish. But I just want to I want to do the brighter work that's right, not the brighter work just to do brighter. Oh, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't be it can't be just for the sake of it. it. There needs to be the same level of importance and reasoning and causation for the aesthetic choice. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, you know, we have been, Marie, my uh, European agent, and I have been talking about this for quite some time, and it's hard to break into, man, because there's not that much really good, um, brighter work, at least in the commercial space. A lot of the brighter work isn't so good. Yeah. But, you know, I think that there's a difference between, like, like, I wouldn't, like, brighter work can be discussed in certain levels you know because for example ozark season three 
since we were talking about it, and I think it works as an example, I wouldn't really define it as dark and brooding. Sure, at some points, no. at some points yeah. there might be um, something that might be very moodily lit for some scene that was calling for it. But especially what we were what we were talking about before with the, you know, daytime exteriors and their them mm-hmm. being drop dead mm-hmm. gorgeous. It wasn't because they were dark or moody. Yeah. Yeah, you know? no, I totally agree. But he, but he is underexposing. But it's yeah, not, but that's not um, that's not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, but I, I would love to. I would love to do a series. Um, there's like this thing that I, a personal project that I've been trying to put together for years called Literally Literal. You know, that's the name of the project. But uh-huh. I would love to do it where. You remember when we first met, and I was like, every image that I do, I try to find black. Yeah. I would love to do something where there is no black, mm. you know, there's no black and I do that intentionally and I make a look out of that. That's cool. And that's honestly a cool, yeah. a cool challenge to put towards yourself. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like being, and I think it's always super interesting when people are, have a hyper awareness about their aesthetic and then purpose, right. purposefully invert it while still Absolutely. trying to somehow achieve their aesthetic. That's yeah, that's yeah, totally, and man. that's a fascinating trip. That's like staring at yourself in the mirror and and really trying to come up with something. I, I think that that's really um, a positive uh, endeavor. Yeah, but I mean that's that's one of the reasons why I love to do like photo shoots, even mm-hmm. if they're not photo shoots of people. But I just like to take a still camera, yeah, and move around and experiment with things with a still camera because I feel like with a still camera you can experiment much faster. Mm-hmm. And the only way to actually develop a, a, a specific style or a different style, in my case, is to experiment and really like it. Because if you're shooting it and it's just different for the sake of being different and you don't love it deep down inside, it's not going to be good. Right. Well, I think you that's... the sirens? Yeah. It's like literally every single minute. Is, I just want to check it. Man, it's crazy what's happening in New York, man. Super weird, the vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that journey that you're talking about and that, of course, it would be difficult to achieve what you're talking about because it is going against... Um, it is the antithesis. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, you know... the. It is super difficult. I think that that partly the response in terms of, you know, you 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 tend you take the time quietly banking it and then you post it online. However, you, whatever you know, however you exhibit it first, I think part of the experience as the viewer, especially someone who understands your portfolio, like looking at it and understanding immediately that it's the opposite. Part of the awe in that moment is knowing the difficulty because you've inverted like you're doing the opposite of what you do yeah yeah and, and like it, that yeah, it's that's, good that's interesting you know um well yeah. cool i feel like we could riff on on that for a while i one one thing that i wanted to kind of not close on but in the latter half i i was curious especially from my own perspective being a dp just hearing you break down um a few of the pieces that you have just so that i mm-hmm. can kind of hear kind of what you go through in terms of doing it and one of them being mm-hmm. um ghost recon breakpoint mm-hmm. um i'm just curious like what what were the initial conversations like that for uh, in terms of a creative approach um with look and camera movement talking to the to the director what kind of 
kind of dialogue is there heading into it? How, how are you describing these things to one another? Yeah, there was so much, man. Velas, uh, the director, uh, this Brazilian like monster, he's amazing, man. He's such a fucking talented director, but uh, he's super visual. Uh-huh. And he's one of the directors that wants to know what's going on early on, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I shot the previous Ubisoft films with Martin DeThura. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's may, maybe one of the reasons why I was hired. I'm not sure why I was hired, to be honest, but um, I didn't want to just make another kind of action type film. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted the imagery to be more almost, almost like every single image that's in the film is a photograph mm-hmm. and you're just moving around or across or diagonally through that photograph. So that was the first kind of conversations that we started to have was uh, focused on photography and let's make every single frame a photograph that you could stare at for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the, the aesthetic of the, of the actual video game has to come into play because you can't go completely like you can't 180 it. Yeah. You can't kind of create a completely different look. Right. So we, we knew we were shooting in Kiev and then one of the questions that now I ask, one of the very first, uh, maybe not one of the first, but in the in the first few conversations that we have about the film, I I, I want to know about the pacing. Yes. I want to know is this is this film going to be fast paced? Is it going to be slow paced? Is it going to be a mix of two? Is there going to be a crescendo? Is it going to be uh, up and down? You know, what kind of score are you thinking? Give me a reference of what you're thinking for this and those types of questions. And I feel like the, the directors that really understand pacing yeah. are the ones that the film will ultimately be good. Yes. Because pacing is everything, man. It's, it's like the whole edit. That's, I think, where, I, you know, I think people have a hard time breaking down what exactly, like when they're watching something and they're like, oh, that was really good directing as opposed to any mm-hmm. other element. A lot of times, right. a lot of times, I find that if I'm commenting on the directing in particular, I'm commenting on mm-hmm. pacing. On what? Pacing. Absolutely, one hundred percent, man. Because if if you uh, if you comment on the photography, you don't know if that's the director or if that's the DP. Yeah. But pacing, pacing, that's the director and the editor, one hundred percent. Yeah. And and most of the time. I would, I'd say maybe no, actually maybe it's fifty fifty. I don't know if sometimes I'm not a director, so I don't know. But I would be curious to ask a director about his process with pacing. Do you figure that out beforehand? I know if I was directing, mm. I would I would know everything. I would know exactly what the edit is like because I worked with Solomon so many times. He's the type of director that knows the edit. He doesn't go into a film unless he knows exactly him and Dandy Felice, those two fuckers, those two guys, man, they just know everything about the film before we start shooting, mm-hmm. you know? So they know like, okay, this, this part could be handheld and it could be shot poorly because it's going to last for like Minutes. two frames. Yeah. 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 Three frames, 20 yeah. frames. Having that knowledge ahead of time, having that vision. Is, is it's like huge, it's everything it's huge, man. and and another another thing that uh, Velas and I talked about was I don't want to roll the camera unless I like what we're shooting unless both of us like what we're shooting because mm. as a DP uh, and I say this all the time the thing that drives me the craziest about being a, a director of photography is that you don't get to pick your selects yeah 
Whereas like a photographer, imagine telling a photographer, hey, you could shoot the stills, but we're going to have a, not, a, not even an editor, his assistant pick the, the stills. That happens all the time in commercials, man, because the turnaround is, is ridiculous and mm-hmm. it just becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and we have these like million dollar budgets that have a one week turnaround. It's like, how in the world can you make something good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's going to take you three or four days just to pick the selects. In my opinion, it, it takes three or four days to a week to pick selects because I'm so picky with what I want to display and what I don't want to display. So that part drives me crazy. So with Velas, luckily he was a visual director, just like somebody like Solomon or somebody like Dandy Felice. Like, you know, thankfully I've been working with a lot of visual directors recently. You know, uh, Seb Edwards is another one, man. When we did that music video, he mm-hmm. just fucking got it. He just understood it. I, we didn't have to discuss mm. those types of things to the mm. millimeter. It was mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. it's clear. This is where we're putting the fucking camera. We're putting the camera here, here, and here. And that's what we're shooting. And these are the images that we're going to get. And they're all going to be good. Let, let's talk about something. That, that's a really interesting thing. Uh, like only pressing record when I when like we both are in agreement that we, that we like it. Um, I think that's, that's a, an amazing place to be at with a director. Um, it's to speak... Specifically, that the last shot at the end, um, the soldier appearing out of the black smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just talk about that shot because it's 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 iconic, I think. Yeah. And so, was that um, an idea from the very beginning? Was it something yeah, that was thought yeah. about during during uh, like on set? Like what what was the genesis of that shot? No, that was an idea that Velas and I believe the creative director had from the very beginning. They knew this would this is going to end the film. Cool. Because I think the the story of Ghost Reckon. I'm I, I don't know much about video games because I've never played them, but I believe that um, that character in the video game uh, there's something mysterious about him or something that happens. Where Dark he, past, haunted past, something. Yeah, because I think it's a it's a. It's a sequel. I'm I'm almost positive. It There's is, I think, different yeah. Ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and think so. Maybe somebody thought that he was dead or something like that. Oh, so okay. him him appearing, mm-hmm. people think he's dead, and he comes out of this cloud of smoke. Mm-hmm. So it was great. Like that's a great example of uh, knowing what you're shooting, knowing what you're shooting, because I had time to plan that and to try to do 99% of it in camera. And it ended up being almost all in camera besides a piece of set extension. And I lit it, which I, I generally don't like day, but um, I lit that one because I knew what was going to happen. I knew we were going to shoot it in, in, in this specific spot. And it came down to where do we shoot it? And I said, I said to the AD, we could literally shoot this anywhere. We could shoot it in, fucking the streets of New York if you want because yeah. he's coming out of smoke. Yeah, yeah. So he said, can you shoot it in the middle of the day? In the middle of the day? And I said, absolutely. And I remember Velas questioning that. He said, do you, you really want to shoot this in the middle of the day, man? Like, how are you? How are we going to get a mood out of this? And I said, this is the time where you just have to trust that, you know, I, I'm going to execute this idea and, and it will be as good as I think it's going to be. Mm. And let's see. Let's see what happens. If it doesn't work in the middle of the day and you're not happy with the look, we can always redo it it's as simple as you know you have the elements you have the sfx mm-hmm. you have the art department you have wardrobe you have hair you have makeup mm-hmm. it's very simple for us to just 180 because that, that that was the the plan was we'd shoot 
in you know in one direction and then we'd literally flip the camera around and be able to shoot the smoke yeah yeah on a techno crane so that was lit and um we knew what that was going to be ahead of time but what's funny about that is after we finished that i always ask not always but a lot of the times i ask the directors for like 15 minutes after they get what they need to just let me fish with a techno crane that's interesting. Just to find things. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the times it, it results into fucking extremely experimental, weird, fast-paced fucking environments that are really chaotic for the crew. But we end up getting really incredible stuff. And mm. we ended up getting like 20 or 30 frames that I believe were used in it just from that fishing experience. In 15 minutes, we shot so much amazing stuff. It was like all right, let's send the camera up high. All right, turn that maxi brute on. Yeah. And then we saw this incredible light and then Valis would say, all right, let's do this. You go here, you go here, you go here. And I would, I would talk to the, the gaffer and the, and the, and the um, techno crane operator. And I'd say, all right, pickle out and arm up. And, you know, and we'd find these weird things that we would never be able to find if we didn't go fishing, you know? Yeah. So I try, I try to do that whenever we have the time for it. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's like literally 10 minutes. You yeah, know, yeah. Just give me 10 minutes to just try a few things. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, but if, if, if the conditions are right, the amount that you can get in those 10 minutes sometimes beats the amount you can get in six hours. Absolutely, man. Especially at Magic Hour, right? It's like 10 minutes is huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, last, last project um, was, the, was BMW Small Escape. Um, mm-hmm. interesting cause it's another wartime vibe, but obviously of a different, of a different flavor. Um, and what were the conversations there in terms of the creative approach ahead of time? Oh my God, man. That's, that's a, that's a killer to be honest. That project was so difficult to make. Man. What, what so, made it so, so hard? Difficult. One is because Alex, Alex is one of the pickiest directors in the world and he is the prep freak of the world, man. Like if there's somebody that preps a project, more than he does, I would love to meet him. I'd love to meet <laughs> What are they person. doing yeah, that's so like over even, the top? Even on the feature length. I know Fincher like pre-visualizes everything. And yeah. He's, you know, in my opinion, if uh, if there was one person in the world that I would love to work with or dream to work with, it'd be Fincher because I just, his visual language translates so well to what I like. 100%. But, um, you know, going back to Alex, Alex wants to know everything. He wants to know the frame. He wants to know the action. He wants to know the focal length. He wants to know the camera move. He wants to know everything, dude. So to a lot of DPs, that's draining as hell. Yeah. It's like, dude, why don't we just figure it out as we go along? You yeah. know, there's, let's experiment a little bit or leave that. It could be very constricting, potentially. Not al- restricting? It, yeah, not allowing for spontaneity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it does become frustrating to certain DPs, but I... Like I said in the beginning of the conversation, I try to see the best in people, even directors too. Like of, I, I want to respect yeah. everybody's process, uh-huh. so I just go with the flow. Okay. And I, I know he's making good decisions, man, because he's not a—he's a very smart human being. Mm. Uh, when we talk about personal things, we get along, and he inspires me in many ways personally. So I can't just neglect what he has to say. Mm-hmm. I have to take it seriously. But you know, in that context, the art department was so. Do you know the story of how that kind of film came together? I don't know. So the um, the film was about the Berlin Wall, 
Yeah. And, you know, the separation of East and West Germany and um, the anniversary. So everybody was on board about launching at this specific date. But I believe that what happened is that, and maybe I'm wrong, I, I don't want to be held to this, but yeah. BMW found out that Mercedes was also doing something similar. Okay. So when that happened, I think the whole timeline got shifted forward. Yeah. So instead of having three months to do this film, we had one month to make the film. Mm-hmm. So the whole entire thing from A to Z was one month. Wow. So which meant that, you know, those sets that we were shooting, the art department, they wouldn't be ready until the day that we're shooting. We can't pre-visualize anything. So, and then we ended up shooting in like the worst locations ever because we were in Budapest in the height of the season and there was so many productions going on at the same time. So, um, you know, there was, there was plenty of conversations, but a lot of those conversations changed when we were shooting because the sets would come together and then that would inspire us to do certain things. But Alex is, um, you know, he, I, that, that film besides the wide shots, maybe, Yeah. but the close-ups and the rest of the coverage, it was, it was completely Alex, man. Completely. Mm. It would just be like, all right, closer. Mm, a little bit more to the left, a little bit closer. Like I, I don't have directors tell me that almost, almost ever. Interesting. Most of the time, the directors are just like, you you do it, and if I'm happy with it, great. If I'm not, then we'll change it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I saw, I saw, and I'll send you this link, man. There's a 2020 interview with uh, Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. where he talks about Bob Richardson, and there's this just this two-minute section where he says, you know, frankly, the best the best compliment I can ever get is Bob Richardson loves my work so much that he wants to work with me over and over again, but one of the things about Bob is that um, he, if you're not directing the scene, he will literally take over, you know, mm. because he's capable of directing and he can do it. Sure. But um, he's, and he was saying about, he was talking about what Bob would tell him. And he would say, every director, I just place the camera and then they just go. But with you, it's different. It's like, I place the camera and then, Quentin comes in and says, okay, get that flower out, put this person here. You know, he really kind of dictates the blocking and he dictates like the camera movement and the frame. And he says, okay, what happens if we move over to the left a little bit more? That's, that's Alex. Hmm. And that could drive, I mean, I I can't imagine. No, the way that you're describing that. I know some DPs that would go fucking crazy. I like that. If that happened. I like that. That reminds me of the director I work with. And I, Mm -hmm. I always value it a lot. Especially because I, I just I just like when I get the sense that you that that you really have a vision for it. I think the thing that annoys me, the most probably, is when I feel like there isn't a strong sense of vision from the director, and that's not a unique thing to say, but it is no, true. No, no, no. Absolutely, but it is, man. But it is true, and 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 it's like if you don't know, then who does, right? And so when when there is that type of um, commentary coming but and and then Mm -hmm. you know especially when if they're making adjustments and when we get through you know executing those adjustments i'm like oh that is better or oh that is more interesting i mean that's if that's not exciting like what do you where you where are you at you know exactly exactly it's a huge challenge man because um there was times where i wasn't happy with it like some of the close-ups i never frame close-ups like this you know i don't like chopping the chin Mm mm-hmm 
I don't know why. I just don't like chopping the chin. I, I just feel like it's you want to see I, the I whole do head? It well. Some people do it well. Like mm. Steve Annis does it super well, you mm. know. But I, if I was to chop the chin, I'd go into a, a close up of an eye or, a, you know, I'd make the frame a bit weird. Mm. I don't know. Tilt the camera or, uh, sorry, dutch the camera or do something strange to Get make extreme. that close up a bit different. But when we were shooting the close ups, he was the pickiest with the close ups. Mm-hmm. The wides, he, he just let me do it, you know? Yeah. He trusted me. Mm-hmm. And I would say, look, man, we have these fucking giant lights. It's going to look fucking amazing. Trust me. It's going to look really fucking good. And it's going to sell. Because he was so concerned about East Berlin and West Berlin and really being historically correct. And not, you know, because that that could, I wouldn't say that could end somebody's career. But, you know, you're going to get a lot of controversy of not getting those facts right. So yeah. he knew the story so well, man, so well to the T. Every little tiny detail he knew. I mean, he studied it for an entire month before we started, man. And that's all he did for a month mm. was just study that specific story that we were telling. Mm. And he's German, so he knows the story very well and, uh, uh, originally. But um, when, we, when we'd come to the close-ups, sometimes it would take an hour to shoot because he was so meticulous. Yeah. And I didn't get it. I was just, I just went with the flow and I was as respectful as I could possibly be. And I didn't understand it. Mm. You know, but then I watched the film and then I worked with him again, like a month later, which was a compliment. Thank God, because I didn't know if he liked my vibe or not. Interesting. Hard to read. He's not, he's, he, yeah. well, he's, he's also German. He was. It's he a was, totally different. He was hard to read. Yeah. Germans are hard to read <laughs> to, to, to yeah. make, to make yeah, a generalization. I mean, man. from an no, American perspective. I don't perspective. mean that in a bad way at all, man. No, they, no, they it's, it's just, are. it's just they different. They have this mystery to them. You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if that answered the question, but I just, no, I just of felt course like it did. there's things about Alex that, or uh, that nobody else in the world has. Mm. He has such a distinctive thing. And then that BMW film that we did, which hasn't launched yet, we did a second BMW film. Oh, really? The one that I was talking about with the with the kid that I lit with Beto lights. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was. I think December December we shot it in Cape Town, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story about a, a father and a son, and um, you know the father not being around a lot of the times. And, mm-hmm. He sent me the edit and I loved it. I said, this is so beautiful, man. You know, my wife cried watching it. Yeah. And he hated it. He hated it? He hated it. He's like, this is horrible. I said, why? Why do you say it's horrible? He said, because it's just not pure. Mm. You know, it's not me. It's not, uh, it just looks good. And I said, no, man, it's, it's, it's potent, man. Trust me, people are going to really resonate, man. They're really going to love it. And I don't, I don't think that that film will see the light of day. I mean, it will, it will be launched, but I don't think that he will launch it. Interesting. And it's always, it's always weird when a director doesn't display a piece of work and a DP does, you know. But yeah. it's almost like calling the the director out. So I, I don't, I don't like doing that. If a director isn't gonna put it up, I'm not gonna call him out mm. and put it up, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's always that risk as well. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I guess just to finish on a on a feature, um, mm-hmm. you know, because because Christina and I spent time with Alan Ball at Masters mm-hmm. of Motion when he came, and we went out to yeah, dinner yeah, a few. We went out to dinner a few times, and then I I interviewed him on stage and stuff, and he was just um, 
a total delight. Such a such a nice, caring, giving person. Um, right. And I was just curious what it was like to you know he 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 uh, wrote American Beauty for those who don't know mm-hmm. um, back in the day, and now he has a, a new f- film that you shot for him, Uncle Frank, that premiered at Sundance. Um, what was that? What was that experience like working with Alan? Um, well, from the, from the quote unquote commercial DP, you know, from a commercial, was that I, a hurdle so you features, felt you had to clear? I can't really tell. I don't really know what it's like to work with a lot of feature directors. I've done three films, yeah. but from a human level and from a, from a respect level and just, um, a value standpoint, the, the man is is like no other. He's the kindest, yeah. most trusting human being. Like and and you know it. I mean, deep yeah. down inside, the guy doesn't have a bad bone in his body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's such a nice man, such a caring, loving, um, trustworthy person. You know, but my experience with him is he was the exact opposite of Alex. Yeah. He just let me do it. You know, so I shot listed the entire movie. Is there a without preferred him. way? Like, do do you find that? I don't know if it's that you get better results, but is there? Are you hoping for it to be one way or the other, or is it kind of like what's what is your take on that? I love I love that. You know, I mean, th- there was there was a ton of pressure when somebody like Alan Ball. I mean, he's he's a very respected human being yeah. in Hollywood and and the in the world really. I mean, he's. For those of you that don't know Alan Ball, he's he's he was the creator of some of the most kind of iconic shows in television. He kind of rebranded television in a way with Six, Six Feet Under, Six Feet and Under. True Blood, and yeah. you know. So I think that yes, he wrote American Beauty, and that's one of the greatest films ever made to a lot of people. But I think a bigger accomplishment is how he rebranded the way television looks and the way television is told. And no, well said. I mean, he's an incredible, incredible storyteller. My God. Yeah. And such a gifted writer. So, you know, when I got that movie, I knew I had a big responsibility. So I just, um, I did everything that I possibly could to make him happy, to make sure that his vision was to come across. And learning more about him throughout the process, I learned that Uncle Frank is a, is a very personal story to him. So when you know that you're making this personal story, uh, sort of a passion project for this super talented kind of like really respected director your responsibility doubles yeah and then throughout the process when i started to learn that he was just going to let me do it and he's not going to be as kind of um he's not going to micromanage every little decision that i make Mm. that's an even bigger responsibility so it's a a gift but it's it's also a curse there's no safety net if you fuck it up you're fucked yeah you know but luckily Luckily, there was Paul Bettany, who who I became quite close with on the on the movie, and he was very supportive of me, and and uh, he knew that this was like one of my first experiences on a feature film, and you know, there's always the actors just want to feel comfortable with the DP. They just want to know that this person is not just going to make them look good, but mm-hmm. also knows what he's doing, knows how to communicate, and they're insecure. I mean, that's that's the the big thing is that everybody's insecure, specifically actors. And mm-hmm. Ben Kitchen said this yesterday, but their job is the hardest on the set. Like we as DPs are just lighting and shooting. They're they're bringing something completely different, something so big to the table. And 
if they're not in a place of comfort, they're they're not going to deliver that performance. And you only you only have this on, a, on an indie movie. You have 25 days. 18 days was my first. 25 days was my second. So you're on a fucking crazy schedule. Yeah. And you don't have a lot of time to do it. So I just wanted to be as respectful as possible, not just to uh, to the actors, but also to Alan. Yeah. So I did everything in my power to make sure that I'm not stepping on his toes, um, that he understood what I was doing, yeah. um, to communicate that what I'm doing every day. Because during prep, there was days where I didn't even see him mm. because I would just be I would just be in the office or at my at my house or my apartment. We shot in uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they got me this flat, this like small little apartment. But it was really nice, like downtown. So mm-hmm. it was inspiring to be there. So I'd spend a lot of time just sitting on my balcony, shot listing the movie or reading the script. I, I must have read that script 30 or 40 times, man. Mm-hmm. I read it so many times. I wanted to know what every scene was. Yeah. I wanted to know whose scene it was. I wanted to, I wanted to know it from a directing standpoint. Mm. So I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to be respectful, man. He's such a... How would you describe him? He's a saint, man. He's like a Buddhist monk. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, you go into those types of dinners. It was me, Christina, John, and Alan. Um, Mm -hmm. And you you have a certain perception of of his work. You don't have any perception of him. And um, the more you talk, the more you understand how... I think giving is the right term. Like, cause, right. I, cause we weren't working together. It was just a meal, but like in that sense, then giving in conversation, um, giving in what, in, in like what he f- wanted to contribute in that way. And that continued. And like, he came out every night and like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he was just, um, I don't know, you could say a mensch in terms of like allowing everyone that was there and the attendees to, to really spend time with him. Like he, you know, I don't know you, you don't expect that. You just don't expect that. Yeah, um, no, I definitely. You and know? even the production designer Darcy and I and still talk until now about how that process was so strange to us because that very rarely happens. Where he, I remember she would present these boards. She'd set these. She, she'd spend all this time making these boards to present to Alan. Yeah. And she'd spend like days doing it. Yeah. And then she, we would turn up to this production meeting and then it would be her turn to speak. Yeah. And she would say, okay, this is sort of how I feel. Like, this is going to work. And this is what I see as Wally's apartment. And he's like, okay, great. It's almost like he doesn't care, but he does. He just trusts so much that yeah. well, he's he, just like, he approved. let it be your vision. You yeah. Know? Yeah. How do you see it? You know, how do you see it? That's a very giving and, artist, especially when you're the one that can change it if you wanted. Well, he's been there, done that, man. I think that that's part of it. He may have been more controlling in in, in the earlier stages of his career. I oh, don't know. Certainly as a showrunner, he, he must have because yeah. you knew an Alan Ball uh, TV show when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. There's a certain darkness to to the tone of, of his, his, uh, his shows. Certainly. You know? But um, his husband, his husband was also an actor in the film, Peter, and he's also, he's Middle Eastern, so Mm. we got along because we were both Middle Eastern, but he's also just like this incredibly, incredibly talented human being. Yeah. And he was one, he was one of the producers. Cool. And before I got the movie, 
Jay Van Hoy, the the producer of the film, said, "Hey, Alan's husband, who's also a, a producer on the film, wants to speak to you. He wants to interview you. Do you mind doing that? I know it's it's sort of unorthodox, but I'm like, no, of course, man, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to talk to him. So I spoke to him, and I didn't know that that was the conversation. Oh so wow! If I fucked up that conversation, that, I wouldn't have got the movie. How'd that conversation go? It went super well, man. He just he he wanted to know that I got it, that I got the movie. What do you think you said that made him understand you did? You know, I said I said that if it's um, if it's bright, it should be bright. You know, if it's a because if the film is serious, it's a really serious film. But there's comedic relief to it. Mm-hmm. So that uh, he he wanted to make sure from all of the work that he's seen from from uh, my website, including my stills, mm-hmm. that I wasn't just going to approach this as this dark kind of film because it's about homosexuality. And, and yeah. if you if you were to shoot it in that way, it would be disheartening. In a yeah. Way. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It just wouldn't it wouldn't be doing the right thing. It would almost be cheating mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. lying. You yeah. know. So I just yeah. said if a scene is supposed Tropey. to be ugly, we, we should just let it be ugly. You know, because there's some scenes that are really ugly in the film and they were intentionally ugly and I felt like they they needed to look ugly. If they looked pretty, it wouldn't be right. Well, that also that kind of sounds like what we were talking about. That's kind of somewhat coming full circle with not that it's like bright, but that you aren't, you are kind of going for something that aesthetically is lifted. And that also yeah, you are, dude, you'll see, you'll, you'll see it dude, for sure, man. Like I, I don't think that you will watch that film and say Khalid shot it. You That's know, cool. I, I sent Solomon stills from it and he's like, Oh my God, man, this is like screaming your work. And I said, fuck, I was so disappointed that he said that, but <laughs> I, My I, I understand. So. They were like, this is great. It's so different than everything that you've done. But that's so awesome. Cur- I can't wait for it to come out. Especially if it is, because um, it is doing that thing where it's a, it's doing what the script is asking it to be and not what your aesthetic is automatically, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That is yeah, I, working towards that. That's the step down the path towards like effortlessness. Have you seen Kate's film Shallow or Swallow? I haven't seen it yet, no. It's fucking awesome, man. It's such a good movie. And not, not just her photography, but the movie in general is so different. It's such a weird, weird story. But I remember uh, at Camera Maj when we watched it, I was talking to Kate about it. And, you know, there's some scenes that are like frontly lit. They're mm-hmm. like just complete front light. Yeah. And I, I know Kate well enough to know that she understands that this isn't right. Like this isn't lit well. Right. You know, but she did it in such an effortless way that it just felt right for the movie, mm-hmm. and it made it so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've I've actually referenced a, a few yeah. uh, scenes from that movie that Kate shot because it's so bold. You know, bold but still effortless. There, yeah, I I had a talk with uh, one of my I, I, my favorite movie of last year, um, Last Black Man in San Francisco, that Adam Newport uh, shot. <laughs> you know what's hilarious about that? What? I I don't even want to say it. I I turned down that project. Hmm. Wasn't it was like everybody's like, oh, are you fucking out of your mind? Because it was it was like a tier zero, and like there was no there was no money, and it was like an I think it was an eighteen day shoot, and I didn't want to do another eighteen day shoot, so I turned it down. And I look I I, I just watched the film probably a week ago or so, 
Really? While we were while we were in quarantine, yeah, that was my first time watching it. Really? And I can't light the way uh, Adam Newport Barrett lights. He's and he's a friend of mine as well, man. He did a fucking phenomenal job it's, shooting that movie. It's just gr- it's he, gorgeous. He did it right. He did it right. Yeah, and I I think a lot about that bizarre, um, surreal decision about not only front lighting in broad daylight, but with a gold, yeah. but with a gold shimmering bounce. And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that th- that's moving and and not static and noticeable, uh, yeah. and 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 not motivated and yet and it break like literally it, you go down the checklist of things not to do and it does all of them and and it it works. Um, it's just what you, what you were talking it, yeah. about reminded me of that. We had a we had a great episode actually breaking it down um, a little while ago. Oh, did you chat with him? Yeah, he I've he's been on the pod twice, which was great because once we get to a second episode, I you know we don't have to talk about their past anymore. It could be about whatever, and so it was a whole it was forty five minutes talking about breaking down the movie, and then it was fifteen twenty minutes talking about his episodes of um, God, the name is escaping me. The HBO show, Glow, not Glow. Glow no, um... you know what I'm talking about. God. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Euphoria. Euphoria. That's it. Euphoria. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Adam's an interesting cat, man. He's he's uh, he's really coming up at the moment. You know, I really really respect his work, and this is one of those scenarios where I turned down the movie, and thank God I turned down the movie because I couldn't have done that. Mm. And the same thing with Gus Van Sant's movie. Um, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. I think that's the name of the film. Uh-huh. He, yeah, it is the name of the film. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. So it, I didn't turn that film down. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Christopher Blauvelt got it, who's also like a really talented DP that I look up to. Mm. But I watched that movie and I said, "Oh, thank God I didn't shoot that movie because I couldn't have done that." Fascinating. Like I can't, I can't like the way Christopher Blauvelt lights, and I can't like the way and uh, Adam Newport Barrow lights. Like I just, he has his own thing, his own experiences, his own taste. Mm. that he gravitates towards this type of way of doing things, this kind of camera movement where I have completely different experiences and different morals and no, maybe not morals, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 Like what we were talking about earlier, but like what makes somebody kind of have this specific style. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same about Kate, like swallow. I've, I would never, ever have been able to shoot that movie that specific way. I think I would have been able to shoot that movie. It just would have been a completely different movie. Yeah, no, well, it's I, weird, of course. It's weird to say, man. It's weird to say that, uh, and that's how important a DP's role in a film is you could make a completely different movie if it looks completely different. Because to me, um, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot was a very dark story. It wasn't a, a lighthearted story. It was about an alcoholic. It was about addiction. It was about recovery. And he, there was definitely some comedic relief to it, but not like Uncle Frank. It was darker. Mm-hmm. Like Gus Van Sant, quite uh, kind of dark. Yeah, he can go dark for sure. Yeah, he can go dark, but it, it doesn't look dark. Right. Yeah, no, it's, you know? it's conceptually dark, mentally dark. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's what Harris Savitas did so well. And ultimately, Gus Van Sant ended up going with Chris Blavelt because he was uh, Harris Savitas' focus puller. Huh. And, you know, um, he did a phenomenal job. 
And I, I, I'm trying to watch the, the film that he just finished shooting mm-hmm. because I really look up to him because he's, he's, um, he's a DP that could do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. He could do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, just like Savitas. Maybe, maybe he learned that from Harris. I'm not sure. And I think Adam as well. Adam, His range. I, I watched a commercial the other day that I, I, I was supposed to shoot and Adam uh, ended up shooting it because the agency thought that our, my work was too dark. Huh. And I watched it and I said, wow, he really fucking did a great job shooting this. But this is not, it's not that I don't like it. I like it. It's just not my cup of tea. It wouldn't have been your result. No, I would have never, I would have never been able to do that. Right, right, right. No, he he has has an interesting range. And as a DP, you have to be honest with yourself. You can't go, like you can go outside of your comfort zone as long as you believe in it. But if you don't believe in it, it's going to feel forced. Well, it's interesting because there was a question that I was like, I had, I had a few things here that I haven't asked because we've talked about other things and it's all been good, but I was, this is interesting because just in terms of navigating your career and the fact of like, I always find that your job selection and what you actually end up doing seems to, you just have a good track record for picking the right things and what accounts mm-hmm. for that. And I think that that, that that might also be a myopic view from where I'm sitting because I don't know how much it's also about what comes across your desk and right. this, that, or the other. So, but, but it does seem that way. And it seems like you're hinting at what, what that's about. Yeah, to, to a degree. I, I, I don't necessarily understand the question, though, dude. Just that, that there's been a good track record for picking the right things. And I don't know if that's where you, what you attribute that to. Oh, dude! I mean, that's a that that's a that's a huge life lesson that I learned. Like, probably, I don't even know. I think it, it was definitely early on in my career, but not that early in my career. That it's more important to say no than it is to say yes, because that's ultimately what's going to shape your career. Mm-hmm. Is what you say no to, because if you said yes to the wrong projects, then you would build this body of work that you're ultimately not going to be happy with. Mm-hmm. You know, I and now I'm a little bit more kind of receptive to features. Mm-hmm. I used to turn down everything, everything. Now that I've shot two features or three features, technically, um, I'm a bit more receptive to doing like projects that are a little bit outside of my comfort zone or scripts that I don't necessarily love. Um, Chivo told me this, but he said, he said, you're never, or not never, but he said, very, very rarely are you going to get a script that you love with a director that's incredible. He said, you're, you're, it's either going to be a really great director with a script that you don't really love or that you don't fully understand, mm. or it's going to be a script that you are obsessed with, with a director that isn't like the best. Mm-hmm. And I took that advice from him very seriously, because to me, when I, when I, in the beginning, I was looking at the script and I was looking at the director, and I said it needs to be a fucking phenomenal script. It needs to be a great director, and it needs to be a producer that has some sort of track record that I know that they're going to be able to pull this thing off. But now, you know, if it's a if it's a good director and a mediocre script, I will take it. Or if it's like a phenomenal script, I was going to do a, I was going to do a film. I didn't get it. 
um, or I don't know if I didn't get it. The film hasn't been made yet, but I don't think I'm going to shoot it. Like I, I think the director is going to go with somebody else, but a script that I fell in love with, a true story about um, Malcolm X and... Um, you know, I, I don't want to say too much because it's, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. It's going to give away too much. the details. Don't matter. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a story about Malcolm X and and um, not about him specifically, about a writer mm-hmm. uh, that wrote a story about Malcolm X, and it was based on real events and that type of thing. So I love those types of stories, mm-hmm. stories that are based on real events about something that actually happened because. You know, I came from a documentary background and I, I loved, I still until now love documentaries. So when you mix documentary and fiction, it's it's beautiful. So I wanted to shoot that badly, really badly, and I didn't get it. Um, so I think that's part of it. You know, that's totally part of it. And if this was me four or five years ago, I would have been gutted. I would have been like nearly crying, mm-hmm. not getting it. But now, you know, two years sober, I don't really care so much anymore. Hmm. No, I don't want to say that. It's, it's the wrong way, but you know what I'm saying. You yeah, know, I don't well, take things it's not so an emotional roller coaster. Anymore. What's that? It seems like it's not a, an emotional roller coaster. It's more steady. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%, man. 100%. Yeah. That's cool, you know. And, that, and that's, that's part of sobriety in general, man, is that, hmm. that you're, you're not going to have emotional roller coasters as much. Yeah. Still human, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like interesting. I feel like two years ago, even now, like there's so many unknowns, man, with where we are at the moment. One is like we don't know what our financial situation is going to be like. None of us, because we have no idea when the film industry is going to pick back up. So it's like if you if you don't have a savings, mm-hmm. or if you haven't filed for unemployment, or if for whatever reason, I mean, bankruptcy is something that comes across my mind all the time, mm. every day living on the street or running out of money or, you know, not being able to provide for my family and that type of thing. And I feel like, um, sobriety has helped me so much in just being leveled Mm. and taking everything one day at a time and taking all of my thoughts and kind of just putting, putting a pause for a second on my life and thinking about it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I, I uh, am just reflecting on the fact that it's it's interesting that we're having the podcast recording now. I think for for years there's certainly been like a desire to do um, a chat with you, um, and mm-hmm. as as this is kind of coming to a close, it's it's uh, you know just nice to say that I think it happened um, at the right time. Yeah, man, I'm I'm learning so much, and it's been like incredible, like incredibly inspiring chatting with you, dude. We should we Likewise. should talk more. I love that. And um, and it's and I I'll I'll um I'll end with this, dude. Mm-hmm. One thing that this is this whole thing has taught me, man, is my priorities. Mm. Like um, we don't need so many things, man. There were so many times where. I'd be approached to do an interview or a podcast and I, and I would always blame things on time. Mm. Like I don't have the time. I'm not going to have the time to do it. And now I'm like, you know what? If you manage your fucking time correctly, you can do it. Like I've been working out since September and for years I used the excuse. It's an excuse. No matter what it is, it's a fucking excuse. You can make time for anything in your life. 
anything that you want to do. If you want to learn how to speak another language and you work 20 hours or sorry, 40 hours a week, it's simple. It's just like manage your time. If you're on set every single day, come home and do 10 to 15 minutes every day and you're eventually going to get in better shape or you will learn that language. So, you know, I'm learning so much just from being home and having the time to think about it because it's, it's not like I haven't had like a week off in, well, 2019 was a fucking crazy year for me. I didn't have any really kind of, I never had a week off. I was working, 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 but, um, What's interesting about where we are at the moment is that no one is working. Mm-hmm. So the element of like comparing yourself to other people or, you know, being anxious about not working, about not, you know, the, the whole freelance lifestyle of like, am I going to get another job? Is my career over? That type of thing isn't there because no one is working. So it's like you're left with yourself and your thoughts and the, and the physical belongings that you have. And it just makes you realize how kind of irrelevant all this stuff is. Hmm. The physical stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, yeah. Um, you know, thanks. Thanks for the time. And, <laughs> and I, and I haven't, I haven't, uh, I've never had a, a two hour podcast before, but, uh, but this makes, Oh, has it been two hours? It, it has. It wow! Has. I know uh, it's not something we normally do, but it it made all the right sense. So yeah, it felt nice. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, for sure, man. 